Today we reach the culmination of our fall 19 uh, transparent series from 2 Corinthians chapters 6 through 9. We, we've seen Paul at some of his most transparent, vulnerable, authentic moments. If you remember in September, back in chapter 6 and 7, we looked at what a relational authenticity looks like as a Christian leader, uh, what we might call a generous transparency. Then in October and today, chapters 8 and 9, we're looking at what godly stewardship looks like for a believer and for a local church, what we might call a transparent generosity. And today, Paul reaches his crescendo. He, he describes the nature of extraordinary generosity, or what I'm calling exponential generosity. And in many ways, this text today might be the classic biblical text for what we call Christian stewardship and personal generosity. In other words, we can't truly or fully understand how we view money, how we use money according to the Bible without an accurate understanding of what Paul says here. Now, we're talking about financial generosity, which leads me to uh, make a couple of caveats. About two weeks ago, I was talking with our grace group and said some things that I assumed everyone would know, and they reminded me that might not be true, not at our church and not at a lot of churches. So thanks to their wisdom, I'm going to share those two caveats with you. First of all, I don't know what anyone gives to Grace Polaris Church. Not only do I not know, but I don't even have access to that. There are only several people on our staff who are part of our finance or stewardship team who know that. These are people full of integrity and who take your confidentiality and giving seriously. So I don't know what they give. I don't know what fellow pastors give. I don't know. And I like it that way. The only way I do know is if someone requests it or they send in a gift to our church to me in the mail. Now, that's actually happened several times. I take that immediately and pass that on to our finance people. By the way, if you're going to write a check to our church, don't write it to me. Send it in to those who should get it. Second thing, what you give does not affect my compensation from this church one penny. There's a group, part of our College of Elders, who from the very beginning set my salary. I've never asked for a raise. Typical staff practice is that whenever our staff has some kind of cost of living adjustment, that I'm included in that. So if you give $3 or $300,000 or none of the above, that doesn't add or subtract at all to what I receive, and I'm glad for that. By the way, I want to take personal opportunity to say thank you for your giving to our church, for the honor of being paid to lead our church and to lead our staff. We are blessed and humbled. I know I speak for all of them. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for your kindness and your teamwork. Now, having said that, gives me at least my own conscience an increased freedom to speak from the scriptures. This passage in particular in this topic, and I, I hope that it gives all of us receptive ears and a, and a soft heart eager to hear what God's Word says to us. And my desire this morning is that we hear from the Scriptures well and that the grace of God is felt very deeply in our own hearts. And we do that by looking at the Scriptures. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Hopefully, hopefully you brought a Bible with you. If you don't have one, uh, our host would be happy to put one in your hand. Just raise a hand here. We'll give that to you. Uh, a loan to you if you have a Bible at home, a gift to you if you don't own a Bible. We want you to have a Bible 
and we want you to read God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if my memory serves me correct, about page 940 in the particular Bible that you're being given. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll begin at verse 6, as is our custom. I'd invite you to stand as we read the scriptures together. I'm reading from the New International Version. Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered the gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, we're going to see several things. One of them is the biblical basis for generosity, which is the grace of God. And if we fail to grasp that, if it fails to move our hearts, then all the practical input in the world from the scriptures and from our own experience is going to fail to change our habits. And let's be honest here, the power of the truths that we're looking at today and in these weeks is shown less in the moments, hours, days, or weeks afterward, and much more in the months and years and decades. See, all of us can have our heartstrings tugged and make a little adjustment for our conscience sake, but to actually make substantial change in how we view God, His grace, and what generosity is, those are things that actually mark a life. It's the grace of God that will propel us to those habits. Second thing we see is the purpose of generosity, which in this case is to further the gospel, to help God's people, and ultimately for the glory of God. Generosity shines to make God look glorious. In your outline in the back of your worship program, we have several points there. The first one is this, proper perspectives on generous giving. Let's look at the scriptures beginning in verse 6. Paul begins this section in very plain spoken way, uh, speaking of the motives, the manner of generosity, and he, and he starts with that. He speaks in agricultural terms. A farming metaphor is not far from the pen of Paul in this passage. So let's call this the principle of investing. You reap what you sow. Most of us have heard that truism a time or two in life, and if you had parents like mine, maybe a hundred times. You reap what you sow. But here Paul says something a little different. He says the volume of our reaping will result from the volume of our sowing. It's not just whether we sow, it's also how much. 
This is the language of proportion, which is a big deal to God, as we've seen in these passages. God's less interested in actual amounts and more interested in proportions to the total of what's available to us. So when it comes to financial stewardship, here's the question, how much do we believe belongs to God? When it comes to financial generosity, what proportion are we investing beyond our needs? We can give sparingly or we can give generously. Paul presents those two options here. Actually, Paul presents a total of six options, four more in verse 7. Let's start with the middle two, verse 7, both of them negative. First of all, Paul says, a follower of Jesus should not be a reluctant giver. This is the person who has little desire, little passion. Truth be told, they'd really rather take it back. But duty or status or the expectation of other people prompts them to give, but reluctantly. Not a good thing, Paul says. Another not good thing is to give under compulsion. Here the picture is a, an outside group, a person, some kind of expectation that makes us feel like we're required to give. Sometimes it's the threat of punishment or social exclusion or shame. Whatever the cause is, this compulsion takes away the voluntary nature of giving. And Paul says here that giving which is not ultimately voluntary, freely chosen, runs contrary for God's plan for his followers. It, re it reflects somebody who doesn't understand the liberation of the grace of God. Two more here, found at the front and back end of verse 7. First, we should give as we've decided in our hearts. Not social custom, not outward expectation, but in our hearts. We should give, that means, as a pattern, not impulsively, not casually, but proactively, deliberatively. We should choose how much we give. In other words, we've decided based upon what we have, what would be generous toward God from me? It's not what can I give. The answer to that is everything. It's not what must I give. The answer to that is nothing. It's what should I give. Finally, and perhaps most importantly at the end of verse 7, we should be cheerful givers. God loves a cheerful giver. God has particular delight in a joyful heart. Now, almost no one always gives with delight, especially when it involves sacrifice. But, but cheerful giving is the ideal way, the best way, even if it's not the only way. Sometimes in life, you just don't feel it. Know what I mean? There are certain days, if, if you're honest, that you really don't feel the love for your husband, but you choose to love him anyway, I hope. There are certain days where you don't feel like exercising, you know, the treadmill, the weights, and so forth, but you do it anyway because you know it's good for you. And you hope that as you make these choices that, will, that it will increasingly become a delight for you. That's not far off the mark for how Paul's describing giving here. God desires that our giving becomes a cause for joy, that we're tickled to give. The, the word here is uh, related to our word hilarious, that there's an overflow of joy, of gladness in the giving. 
It's a great prayer to God. God, help me to be a generous giver and give me cause for delight, joy in doing so. Let me sum up these last two options. All giving should be because we choose to, and as much as possible, as soon as possible, because we want to. Ask God for that in your life. Let's pause here and and review a biblical understanding of giving from this whole section, chapters 8 and 9. We we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago in October, and uh, Pastor Chip Ingram, who's uh, in our uh, country in the last couple of decades, he's written a good set of summary principles. Number one, biblical generosity gives the first and the best to God. There's a principle all throughout Scripture of what we might call first fruit giving. Number two, biblical generosity is regular and systematic. It's planned. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the, the idea of systematic giving is proposed. Number three, biblical generosity is proportional to our income. We've spoken about that, and we see that here in our section. It's proportional. Number four, biblical generosity involves a sacrifice. Remember the Macedonians who didn't have a lot, but they were generous, sacrificial givers, which in turn should motivate the Corinthians. The same is true of us. Number five, biblical generosity is thoughtful, voluntary, not coerced, and an act of worship, worshipful. We see that in this very passage. So the Bible's teaching on stewardship on generosity matters. Question for us is, are you a believer? And have you received the grace of God in salvation? If so, as two authors write, when you accept the gift of your salvation, your whole life comes under the authority and guidance of God, including your money. It's written about in a a little book called True Riches, what Jesus really said about money in your heart, written by two guys who are under 35, I think 30 or 32 years old, went to Harvard and then discovered as believers that their whole conception of money and abundance was wrong. Great book. A couple of things I might quibble with in here. Highly recommended True Riches, as well as a book that we've talked about previously, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Second point in your outline, divine capacity toward generous givers, beginning in verse 8. When we, when we talk about capacity, we talk about the ability of someone to do something. So think of a weightlifter. Capacity is how much he's able to lift in pounds. Or a marathoner is how many miles he or she can run. Or a figure skater, how many uh, axles she can spin. Think of a diver, how long he can stay under the water. Here Paul highlights the inexhaustibility, the, the unlimited nature of the grace of God to his people. And grace is literally the word here. Here's how it says in the Christian Standard Bible, the Holman, as some of you know it, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you. The well of the grace of God never runs dry. Never. God's grace is inexhaustible, particularly for his people. And there's a reason why that matters. Look at the verse there. Verse 8, all grace, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, all good works. God is able to provide for your needs. And that's especially true. That's especially relevant in this context 
when we choose in our hearts to be cheerful, generous givers. If I sow, I do so believing that God will provide my need. Do you believe that? As it's been noted, many people remain miserly in their giving because they worry they won't have enough for themselves. But that worry, that anxiety is actually an insult to God. Because God says here that he lavishly, abundantly supplies everything necessary for us, for our own needs, and to be generous with others. New Testament scholar David Garland writes, Reluctance to sow generously reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. I think he's right. We also give in part because we know that there may be times in the future in which we have need. And so we give in the knowledge that we may be paying it forward. Generosity creates this uh, relational bridge, a kind of rep reciprocity in giving. If my day comes, or when my day comes where I have need, I know that the grace of God will care for me through the people of God. This past week, one of our men stopped by our church offices. He, he's gone through some very serious health challenges earlier this year. And at one point, his future health, his future life looked quite precarious. But in God's good grace, he's been restored to a, to a measure of health. And, and we've seen him here at Grace in the last couple of months on a regular basis. And, and in that conversation, he remarked how, how warm people have been to him. Full of hugs here at Grace. Thanksgiving, affirmation of him. And he was overwhelmed by it all. But I wasn't surprised. Here's why. Because he spent years caring for people here making them feel valued. And when his time of need came, the return was in abundance. That's not why he served. That's not why he loved. But the return on investment for him was off the charts. That's what happens when we're generous. Generous with our time, with our service, with our talents. Yes, even our money. If we're honest, many of us think about money as if it's a zero-sum game. You've maybe heard the phrase. Zero-sum is a situation in which whatever is gained by one side is lost by another. Or if you want a more precise definition, in game and economic theory, a zero-sum game is a mathematical representation of a situation in which each participant's gain or loss is exactly balanced by the loss or gain of the other participants. We often live like that with money. And if that's true, then generosity is just a euphemism, just nice sounding words for losing. See, if God's ability was limited by zero-sum realities, then generosity is just a feel-good thing for us, but ultimately it's unproductive. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible can grow the pot for the benefit of caring for his people and for the multiplication of good for those who are recipients. God provides for us this passage's teaching so that we can sow and give more and to care for our basic needs. Paul quotes that in verse 9 here, uh, uh, a reference to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 112. 
God replenishes what they give so that they lack nothing. And he will continue to give to the generous giver for the means of further expressing generosity. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11 here. It's as if God has found a well that produces water and God continues to prime that pump so that the well can be generous to those who need it. If you look here in verses 10 and 11, it's, it's an agricultural metaphor. It's like the farmer in March or April planning for the season. The farmer has limited seed and he has current hunger and he has future hunger and he has a family that he cares for that will have hunger as well. So they can eat the seed, which will be temporarily satisfying, or he can plant it, he can sow it in the hopes that, with the risk that, it will yield a multiplied harvest in the future. What should he do? Should he eat it or sow it? Should he consume it or should he invest it? Pastor Dan Green, who has an agricultural background and degrees said this this week, consuming what you have is the last thing you want to do if you don't have to, because you're inhibiting the future return on that seed. This is consumption versus investment. God's actually the supplier of both. God is capable of sufficiently providing food now and seed for an abundant harvest later. It says here that God will increase, he will multiply the volume of seed for sowing. That those who trust him by showing generosity, he will care for you, he will more than care for you. He will allow you to be even more generous. This is a common idea back in uh, Paul's day in, in Jewish thinking. And if we're candid, transparent, this idea has often been perverted by religious leaders to entice people to give more so that they will get more for themselves in return. You know, it's kind of generosity as spiritual slot machine. But the Bible warns us against that. If you hope to gain greater material prosperity, then you're only going to harvest spiritual poverty. See, God rewards generosity with material abundance to make it possible for his people to be even more generous. It's not for consumption purposes, but for multiplied generosity. God doesn't give us more to reward us so that we can consume more. He gives us more than enough so that we're able to be generous. And this generosity has a contagious, a multiplying effect. It's like a snowball in terms of positive results. But generosity is difficult. And it's difficult in large measure because of the culture that you and I find ourselves embedded in. We, we breathe in the values of our culture and we're influenced by them. One person said, probably correctly, that we could add to what's written in the Declaration of Independence. In addition to the inalienable rights that we have to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we probably should add a fourth, at least the way we live, and that is the pursuit of prosperity. Prosperity has become a, an idol, maybe the idol of our age, and that affects our willingness to be generous. Joel Zooks, our 24-year-old pastoral resident uh, this year and next year, and he spoke beyond his age this week. He said, the fear in our culture for generous giving is less that we won't have enough to meet our needs, but rather that we will have to give up comforts that we've become accustomed to. 
I don't know about you, but I find that convicting, uncomfortable, because it's probably true. It reveals in my heart a lack of contentment with my circumstances, a faulty view of the kind of God that we serve. Good news is the Bible speaks to this. Paul himself speaks to this when he writes to the young man, Timothy. Listen along. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and following. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. For if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. A kind of spiritual suicide that Paul talks about. Skip down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age or the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's teaching here that contentment is a posture of the heart. It's a heart that can rest peacefully in the present circumstances whatever they are. It's a heart that's actually concluded something to the question, what is enough? Paul faced that same question. Here's what he wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Can you say that? I know what it is to be in need, he writes, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Can you say that? Oh, that we could, that I could. Contentment here doesn't mean, doesn't require a meager income or a meager asset base. Contentment is on offer from God to every one of his people wherever you find yourself on the economic ladder. And when you find it, when you choose it, it begins to affect your generosity as well. Moment of candor, compared to almost all of history, compared to most of the world, compared to much of our society, we are very prosperous people. Don't think of it in relation to your bank account or to your loan obligations. Think about this in terms of what we have access to. Our standard of living is historically extraordinary, and that's the grace of God. What if our demonstration of generosity was also historically extraordinary? Randy Alcorn and others have said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. What if we actually believed that? What if we actually showed the world that we were not prisoners of greed like those who don't know the Lord and that the litmus test that is money says something about our trust and relationship in God? 
Many of us know, as Garland writes, that some of the most difficult tests come when we must prove ourselves obedient to God in times of relative prosperity. Newsflash, if you have any assets, we are abundantly prosperous today. And in that prosperity, we're able to show the world where our dependence lies and in whom we trust and can be generous. Verse 12.3, multiplied effects of generous givers. Sometimes when we attempt to be generous, we think, well, this is having limited value and, and nobody knows it. And that may be true in the short term. And the Bible cautions us not to parade our generosity before others for their approval. But, but in these final verses of this passage in this section, it's as if Paul pulls back the curtain to reveal the effects of generous giving. And if we're stingy, it should make us sober. But if we're generous, it should make us elated. Our giving, friends, has global and eternal effects. And the verses here celebrate that kind of giving. The collection that was taken up there in Corinth did more than just meet practical needs for the believers over in Jerusalem. It also prompted people to turn to God in thanksgiving, and the response of thanks was having a ripple effect, it drawing attention to the work of God in the world. When we give, it's not just our own hearts or the recipients who take note. In fact, I can think of at least four groups who benefit when we're generous before God with our resources. First, there's the benefit to the giver, to me, to you. Because we remind ourselves where those resources come from. We remind ourselves who meets our needs. And it reinforces the liberation of contentment. That was true for the Corinthians when they gave, and that's true for us. Second, it's a benefit to the receiver. It tells the receiver, you're not forgotten. Your needs matter. You have a part, a place in the family of God. That was true for the saints in Jerusalem who received this and for those who receive our gifts. The third is it's a benefit to God. Because we tell God that he's the ultimate giver, that he's the supplier, that our confession of faith in the gospel is also demonstrated by our lives. It fuels a thanksgiving to God, the one who supplies all our needs, who, who, who allows many expressions of thanks for himself. And finally, it's a benefit to those who see and those who hear. See, when we're generous, it shows that the gospel is not just a declaration, it's a demonstration. It's not just something that we say with our lips, it's something that we show with our lives. It's something that our hands and our feet demonstrate that Jesus not only transforms my heart, but he transforms my treasures. And other people see that and hear about that and are drawn to praise of God. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, said a number of years ago that there are three things that arrest the attention of people in our society, skeptical as they are. One of them, lives of chastity when our sexual patterns inside and outside of marriage reflect God's design. The second is integrity. When our walk matches our talk, when our lives are consistent with what we embrace. The third, I found this fascinating, is generosity. 
when we give out of abundance, even out of scarcity, to things that last and to people that matter. And all of us can do that if we know Jesus. Young, old, male, female, single, married, fixed income, assets overflowing. Generosity is not bank account dependent. Generosity is heart priority dependent. And it shows that God's a multiplier, that God can take modest means, meager sacrifice, and he can produce a massive ROI, return on investment. Do you believe that? Would your generosity reflect that you believe that? Last and finally, verse 15, the ultimate wellspring of generosity. Paul concludes this chapter, this section, with this resounding benediction that's set up in verse 14. He writes, because of the surpassing grace of God that is upon you. And what is that surpassing greatness? What is this indescribable gift? Is it the gift of salvation? Is it the gift of God's Son? Is it the gift of God's grace? I think it's all of those. And two verses in this very letter reflect that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God's gift of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis for all of our generosity. And when our generosity abounds, the winners are all the way around. I'd like to conclude our time today with some practical input and a story to inspire us. You know, it's one thing to hear about the grace of God. It's one thing to hear about the nature of generosity. They answer the questions of the why and the what, but we still have questions about the to whom and the how much. Two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the how much in a personal way. Today, I'd like to share for a few minutes about the to whom. If we're generous people, where do we invest God's money? This week, uh, one of our elders gave me uh, something from the Columbus Dispatch a week ago. It's a supplement that was called The Giving Life. I see uh, Penn State and Minnesota are there. One of them is not happy today. The Giving Life. And it describes something about the opportunity and the dilemma that people face this time of year. It reads, it's the giving season. Churches and charities will offer Thanksgiving meals. There are collection drives. People encounter distribution campaigns. And that's just the holiday season. Good-hearted citizens donate money and time all year. With so many options, the dispatch writes, where do you start? That's a great question. It's even more important for citizens of God's kingdom, for members of the body of Christ, because we believe that this money doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God and is meant to be used for eternal causes. Where should we give? It's almost year end. And if you're like me, you've already started receiving requests to make charitable gifts. I've already received or expect to receive in the next few weeks requests for giving from the following sources. Grace Polaris Church, gifts and offerings, reaching beyond capital campaign if there's an outstanding commitment, the Christmas Eve offering, holiday outreach opportunities you see in your worship program, 
Worthington Christian Schools, our kids go there. We're delighted by that. They are finishing up a capital campaign. Grace College and Seminary, where I serve on the board. PDHC, Pregnancy Decision Health Center here in Central Ohio. Encompass World Partners, where we have global staff. Gospel Ministries among college students, crew, IFI, and the like. Prison Fellowship, the Colson Center, Angel Tree, you may have heard of them. Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, Religious Liberty. Short-term mission opportunities at other times of year, like Operation Barnabas. The Ronald McDonald House in Chicago, which was extraordinarily valuable for us nine years ago after an auto accident. And truth be told, I'm glad to receive them. We do because at some point in the past or in the present, we've given something. And, and once you give, you receive, right? But if I'm committed to being a generous giver because of the grace of God in my life, where should I give? I'm not going to tell you where to give, certainly not how much, but I will propose these questions for you as you think this through. I'd encourage you to write down these phrases. Number one, are you caring for the needs of your physical family, those under your care, your physical family? The Bible says that he who does not care for those under his care, family members, is worse than an unbeliever. That's strong language. What are the needs, needs of our family? Number two, are you contributing to the needs and the mission of your spiritual family, the local church? I could talk a long time about that. You don't want to hear me on that. Here's what J.D. Greer says. A pastor in his mid-40s, very young, just like me, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, I'm often asked, should I be giving to my local church or is it okay to redirect my offerings to other ministries. He writes, I don't believe Christians should give only to the local church, but I do believe that Christians should give first to their local church. Because in the New Testament, we see believers in Acts 2, Acts 4, and elsewhere giving their money not to specific projects they were passionate about, but at the feet of the officers they had appointed in the church. And it was through the local church that the believers accomplished everything God had called them to. The local church, Greer writes, is God's plan A. When we give to the local church, we give to the central institution for the mission of God. I'll just say, I agree. Number three, are you prioritizing ministries in which the gospel message is central to their mission? Maybe through your workplace, you're offered opportunity to give to good causes. Is the gospel central there? That's a good question for believers. Number four, are you giving to initiatives that take the gospel cross-culturally to the nations? You know, Jesus could have, could have said a lot of things at the end to his disciples, but he said, make disciples of the nations. The nations matter to Jesus, and they should matter to our pocketbooks too. Number five, are you investing in ministries that result in the establishment or health of local churches? Evangelistic ministries are great, but are they helping people find a home in a spiritual family, a local church, a planted church, an established church? That matters. Number six, and this becomes challenging, are you demonstrating helpful compassion for vulnerable people? People in relational proximity or physical proximity to you. And we have to be careful because we can throw away a lot of money doing this, but there are opportunities we have to give to people who are vulnerable. We're called to be generous people. Finally, are you setting, number seven, money aside to the needs that spontaneously arise with people you know, you love, who are near you? It might be $5,000, it might be $50. What about when God places an opportunity in your lap? 
I give these to you in, in some order of priority, I must say, helpful questions that perhaps will be helpful for you as you think this year and in the years to come, how might I be generous? I close with the story told by Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle of Ebenezer Scrooge. We find in Charles Dickens' classic story, A Christmas Carol, an example of this joy. When the story begins, Ebenezer Scrooge is wealthy and miserable. He's caustic, complaining, horrendously greedy. But after encounters with three spirits on Christmas Day, he's given a second chance at life. After his transformation, Scrooge walks through the streets of London, freely distributing his wealth to the needy. He's giddy with delight. He who only yesterday had scoffed at the idea of charity now takes his greatest pleasure in giving. Alcorn writes, what was the source of Scrooge's transformation? Gaining an eternal perspective. Through supernatural intervention, Scrooge was allowed to see the past and his present and his still changeable future through the eyes of eternity. Ebenezer Scrooge leaped for joy on the streets of London because he discovered the life-giving antidote to materialism that had poisoned his soul. Scrooge learned the treasure principle, the secret of joyful giving. Let's ask God for the same insight into our lives. The problem with being tight-fisted is that the closed fist prevents us from receiving anything more from God. When we are open-handed with others, our hands are also open to receive more from God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the risk that you take to entrust what is yours into the hands, the accounts, the pocketbooks of us. That gives us a great opportunity and gives us responsibility. I pray that you would find those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have repented of our own ways, including our own ways with money, and have turned and trust you, Jesus, and say, here I am and here it is. Use me. Use it. Make us generous people, God. Joyful people. People giddy with delight. Because what we have can be used for eternal causes. Thank you for entrusting those choices with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.